0: Amen. Welcome to the Grove, guys. Again, my name is Caleb, one of the pastors here, and we are finishing up um, a sermon series. We're called Missional Profiles. We've been looking at different individuals in the Bible who have obeyed Jesus' command to go, to make, or to teach. This mission, this great commission from Jesus. And today we round out this sermon series looking at Abraham. And in particular, Abraham is an example of somebody who obeyed God's call to go. As we look at this story, as Amy read earlier in Genesis 22, uh, this is one of those huge stories in the Bible. So if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this story. You've seen it on the felt board. Um, You've you've seen the Jesus storybook Bible versions of it. We're familiar with it. But I worry that perhaps we may be so familiar with it that we miss the message of it. We miss the point of it. Abraham here Um, is led out in this example of testing and whether or not he's going to obey God. And it's important, before we look at the text itself, we've got to understand Abraham and God's relationship. It didn't just start here in Genesis 22. It began back in Genesis 12. And God there began these series of promises that we see in Genesis 12, on into 15, 17, ultimately the birth of Isaac in 21, that God is making these promises to Abraham, saying, Abraham, you're going to have a child, and through that child, I will bless the entire world. Your descendants will be as great as the stars in the sky, the sand on the sea. Trust me, this is what I'm going to do in you. Now, the reason why that was uh, kind of audacious is because Abraham and his wife were over 100 years old. And so they were past the childbearing age. So Abraham hears it, and he's like, uh, that, I don't... I don't think that works anymore, God, but okay. And so Abraham then begins to wrestle with God's promise in his circumstances. They seem to be opposed to one another. And God continues to affirm this promise to Abraham all the way then to chapter 21, verse 12, the chapter right before it. God gets direct with him and says, Abraham, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. It's the promise, as clear as can be. God says, Abraham, your offspring, this promise I've given to you, won't be traced to any other children you have. It will be traced through Isaac. He is the promised son. Period, clear, definitive, end of story. Well, then we get to Genesis 22. And if you read through the Bible for the first time, imagine forgetting everything you know about church, everything you know about the Bible, and imagine you're just reading the story for the first time. And you read about this promise, you read about the clarity of Isaac, and then you get to Genesis 22. makes us scratch our head a little bit, doesn't it? What is God up to in Genesis 22? And what is it that he's trying to teach Abraham, and what is it he's trying to teach us? And why is it we would be here on this Easter Sunday in 2021? I think the the outline for today, I think the three things that God uh, is showing us here in Genesis 22 is we see that God tested Abraham in verses 1 through 2. Second, we'll see then that Abraham obeyed God. see that in verses 3 through 10. And finally, we see that God then provides a substitute, verses 11 through 19. God tests Abraham. Abraham obeyed God. God provided a substitute. Those are our three points to kind of give us our mile markers as we then walk through today well first God tested Abraham right so again we get to Genesis 22 and we've got a bit of a problem the very beginning God is commanding Abraham to kill his son there's a number of things that kind of create this issue for us like okay first of all God this goes against your promises to Abraham that you've given him all the way up to this point point. and second God, this isn't something that you do Demanding child sacrifice, that's something that Moloch uh, does, not, not Yahweh. Well, who is this? And it kind of creates this rattle in our engines wondering, okay, what's going on here? Is this showing us a part of God that ultimately is going to just fall apart? Is even a God worth worshiping creates this rattle in our engine, right? I was weed eating yesterday and I get towards the end of it and all of a sudden my engine starts to rattle. I'm going, oh, it doesn't sound good. I hope it doesn't blow up later. Um, But I just kept going because I don't know what to do with engines. But there's this rattle that's showing me, I think something's wrong. I hope it doesn't explode. When we get to Genesis 22, is that the kind of thing that we experience? Oh, is this who God is? Is this thing going to explode later on? Who is he? Is he even worthy of worship? And we're not the only ones, perhaps, to ask that question. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist today, he put it this way. Quote, he said, God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar, put firewood upon it, and trust Isaac up on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of a last-minute change of plan. God was only joking after all, just tempting Abraham and testing his faith. This disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was only obeying orders. And so maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you would kind of agree with that. What is God up to? How can we not only defend this story, but hold it up as one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible? We have to be able to answer the question of what God was up to. And Moses, who is the author of Genesis, gives us the key to interpreting this passage in the first six words of the chapter. Look back at verse 22 after these things, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. That's the key for us in understanding this whole passage. But notice what Moses doesn't say. He doesn't say that God was tempting Abraham. James 1.13 tells us, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. God wasn't tempting abraham also notice what it doesn't say that god was punishing abraham this wasn't a punitive result of god trying to help abraham understand the lesson from a punitive standpoint why does that matter well if you're reading again the bible for the first time you get here and you go god what are you up to and moses shows us in verse one that god was testing abraham you see, in essence, God here commands Abraham to do this as a one question test. Here's the question on the test that God gives Abraham Abraham, do you trust me? This was the question that God posed to Abraham Do you trust me? And he asked him this question in particular because Abraham has already spectacularly failed that test three times up to this point in Genesis. He'd not trusted God and tried to take matters into his own hands. Twice in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, he was worried that when he went to a foreign country that his wife, who was beautiful, would be taken by the people and then he would be killed. So he went, okay, listen, here's our plan, wife, Sarah, tell them that I'm your brother, that you're my sister, that way they won't kill me. And he walks through, he doesn't learn the lesson in Genesis 12 because he does it again in Genesis 20. He doesn't trust that God's going to protect him and make good on his promise to bring about great descendants. He says, I've got to take matters into my own hands. And then a third time, not believing that God can bring him and Sarah a son, he then listens to his wife and says, this is a great idea. Let me again take matters into my own hands, and I will take my wife's servant, Hagar, and I'll have a child with her because me and Sarah can't have one. And he yet again doesn't trust God to do what he said he would do. He takes matters into his own hands. Abraham had a huge issue with trusting God. He didn't think that God could follow through on his promise. So here in 22, God tests Abraham and again asks this question, do you trust me? Listen, God knows what's going to happen in Genesis 22. He's not sitting there with a bowl of popcorn like, okay, what are you going to do, Abraham? Let's see. We're throwing this test out. How are you going to respond He's not twiddling his thumbs wondering, okay, let's see what will happen. God didn't need to discover Abraham's faith. He wanted to deepen his faith. He didn't, need, he didn't need it to be revealed. He wanted it to be refined. He wanted Abraham to see the faith that he had within him. Again, James 1, verses 2 through 4 puts it this way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith Produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God tested Abraham here in Genesis 22 to produce a steadfast faith within him, for him to see it within himself. God was standing in front of Abraham, holding out his hand and asking the question Do you trust me? In the midst of an impossible circumstance, Abraham, do you think that I can do? what I promised to do. And friends, maybe you feel a little bit like Abraham today. In the middle of circumstances around you where you read about who God is and what he's promised, and you look at your life and you just go, these two things don't match up. But today I hope you see God asking you the same question he did to Abraham. Do you trust him? Do you think that he can do what he has promised to do? Will your circumstances and God's promises seem at odds with one another? And as he asks you that question, how will you respond? Well, How did Abraham respond? Had he learned anything? Had he changed? Or was he still the same Abraham of Genesis 12, 16, and 20? Well, what we see next is that Abraham then obeyed God. God tested Abraham, but then Abraham obeyed God in verses 3 through 10. We see then Abraham's response. God tells him this command in verse 2, take your son, your only son, whom you love. You hear, he kind of ratchets it up every time, pushing the dagger in a little bit further, helping Abraham see what it is he's asking him to go and do, to take his son, his only son, the son whom he loves, to go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering to the land of Moriah, on a mountain in Moriah. So what's Abraham's response in verse 3? Abraham got up early in the morning. Abraham was prompt. He listened. He obeyed God all the way and right away. He got up early in the morning. He then saddled his donkey, took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering. He set out to go then to the place that God had told him about. Abraham is detailed. Think about it. In some sense, Abraham's standing there and looks at his son and asks the question, how much wood will it take to offer him as a sacrifice? And then he goes and he cuts that wood. Abraham responds and he obeys. He continues, though, and the narrator here is building the tension masterfully in these verses. then On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Three days then, Abraham knows what he is headed towards. And also remember how old Abraham is. Over 100 years old, making a three-day journey. He didn't catch an Uber to get there. This is a hard, difficult journey to get there. And Abraham perseveres through it all, knowing <clears throat> what it is that he's walking to. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the boy and I. You can, you can hear. Abraham doesn't even say Isaac. He doesn't even say my son. You almost feel him trying to emotionally distance himself. He says, the boy and I, the lad and I will go over there to do what? To worship. And then we will come back to you. And it's there you hear the very first hint of Abraham's faith. He says, we will come back. How confident he was, we don't know, but there was a sense here in which Abraham knew we will both go up I will have to kill my son, but I know that we will both come back. Continues on, Abraham then takes the wood, and he laid the wood on his son Isaac. And as his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Again, Abraham took the wood that he had split and placed it on Isaac's back, knowing that he needed help to get everything up the mountain. And the two of them then walked up together. Then we get now to dialogue, and the dialogue is heart-wrenching as you think about this scene. Isaac, who at this point is probably about a teenager, speaks to his father as he's starting to put things together. He says, my my father. Abraham replies, here am I, my son. Isaac says, okay, here's the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac's beginning to put the pieces together that not everything is here there's still something that's missing you put yourself in abraham's shoes and how you respond to a question like that as a parent whenever your child asks you a question that you know to be completely honest will bring difficulty or pain And so as a parent, you try maybe not to tell the whole truth. You don't want to lie. You try to get somewhere in the middle as your children get masterful at asking questions that are impossible to answer, especially at around four years old, it seems like. Millie, my four-year-old daughter, is asking questions now that I'm like, well, professors in seminary, their questions paled in comparison to the questions that you're asking me now. I don't know how to respond to these kind of questions. As a parent, you try not to get into the whole brokenness of this world and answering the questions that are there. But again, you don't want to lie. And so Abraham here is faced with an impossible question. Dad, where's the lamb? Who's about to die? And what's Abraham's response? Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And two of them walked on together. Again, how much Abraham believed that if it was a wishful hope Confidence we don't entirely know, but his response was there nevertheless. We then get to the end of this part of the narrative, and it now shifts to just quick bursts of facts, one after the other. They arrived at the place that God told them about. Abraham built the altar there. Abraham arranged the wood. Abraham bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took his knife to slaughter his son. It's just one thing after the other. And for me, as I read it, I want to know not as much what is said, but what is unsaid here. What was this scene like? What happened here? Again, as Abraham is over 100 years old, is now here with his teenage son, binding his son to offer him as a sacrifice. Did Isaac resist? Did Isaac know what was happening? Did Abraham have to sneak up behind him and knock him unconscious to bind him? Would Isaac have fought him? We don't know. We do see that eventually it got to the point where Isaac is bound on top of the wood. And that word bound in the Hebrew is the only time that word's used in the Old Testament. And it's why in Jewish tradition, this story is known as the binding of Isaac. And so he's bound on the altar, about to be killed. Again, my mind goes to trying to put myself in Abraham's shoes. Abraham, what is going through your mind? And what will happen next? The tension has built. The promises were there earlier, but now the father's hand was raised and the knife was about to fall on his son. What's going to happen? We then see that God provided a substitute. And verse 11 begins with this incredible word, but. This conjunction. It's one of my favorite words in the Bible. This conjunction, the definition of the word but, is uh, used to introduce a phrase or clause contrasting with what has previously been mentioned. So this, con- this this conjunction grammar lesson is used here to be able to introduce a clause that contradicts and contrasts what has previously been said. And so here the author is saying, here's where the story has built up into this point, but God now intervenes. God now steps into the story, and He does. Provide. He provides a substitute. And in that moment, Abraham heard not the sound of his hand flying through the air, but he heard a rustling rustling over in the thicket. And he turns his head and he sees a ram as the angel of the Lord then appears and says, Abraham, stop. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. And in that moment, God provides a ram to be killed in the place of his son. You see that in verse 13. Abraham saw the ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Son and I love thinking about that ram's day. All right, the ram didn't just appear out of nowhere. The ram had an entire day. Woke up, maybe it was around Mariah. Woke up when I'm I'm hungry today. Let me go to my favorite little area here in Mariah and get some berries. He gets there, there's no berries. But he continues to go up then to a mountain to this place where he knows there's other food, and he's there eating. And all of a sudden, then gets into these bushes and moves his head and gets caught in the thicket. And now the reason why I like to think about the ram's day is because we sometimes can brush past situations like this and not realize that that entire calendar of the ram was overseen and orchestrated by a sovereign God to be able to meet in this moment the provision that Abraham needed. It was not a coincidence. God didn't go, Abraham, stop. We need to figure, oh, good, ram in the thicket. This is great. Perfect timing, ram. Thanks for that. God knew what was going to happen and brought it all to be able to provide what Abraham needed in the moment of that provision. Friends, there is no such thing as a coincidence in the calendar of the Almighty. God knew what was happening and he was over it all in every small detail. He's sovereign over every millisecond of history and every square inch of his creation. And he is orchestrating it all for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And we see then God providing Abraham this ram as a substitute. You see those three words there in verse 13. Your your translation may say something different. Mine says the ram was offered as a burnt offering in place of his son. Maybe yours says instead of his son. Whenever it says the feeling and the general understanding is the same, it was a substitute instead of in the place of. It was meant for Isaac, but God provided a substitute. And that ram died in the place of Isaac. God then provides that ram, and then we see then in verse 15 and on, the angel then uh, speaks again and reiterates God's promise to Abraham of the blessing that will come through his son Isaac. He reaffirms the promises that Abraham already had heard. All In verse 18, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Now, that phrase, we may not really know what that means, but we gratefully have the New Testament that quotes that phrase in Galatians 3 to help us understand what's happening here. And Paul writes this in Galatians 3, verse 8. He says, Now the Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles. It's everyone who's not Jewish. God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And God proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham." What an interesting phrase. God proclaims the gospel ahead of time before Jesus to Abraham. Well, how did he do that? Well, here's what Paul says. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Paul is saying that phrase is a proclamation of the gospel and the reality that through Jesus Christ then all the nations of the earth will then be able to have the offer of salvation, to be reconciled back to God and to live eternally with him, not just meant for one nation, but meant for the entire world. And that blessing of salvation comes through Isaac. And so through him all the nations will be blessed through you. That is the gospel preached by the angel of the Lord in Genesis 22, verse 18. And in fact, this entire scene is a huge foreshadowing of the gospel. It's a picture of what is to come. Maybe you heard as we went through it all the things that are so similar. Did you hear the parallels throughout? It's almost like um, C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. It's almost like there are specific things that are connecting here. The very beginning, God tells Abraham to take who? He says, Take your son, your only son, and whom you love, and sacrifice him. You know what God, you know how God describes Jesus in his baptism? He said, This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. John 3:16, God sends his only son, only begotten Son, to who would ever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God's son, his only son, whom he loves, was sent as a sacrifice. Moving on, also other parallels we see in the place where all of this happened was in the land of Moriah. You see that in verse 2, God said to go to the land of Moriah. That place, Moriah, you get on the internet, you type in Moriah, you see where else it pops up in the Bible, it only shows up in one other place in Scripture, in 2 Chronicles 3. It's like, what's well, that's a riveting place in Chronicles. What happened in 2 Chronicles 3? Well, that was the place when Solomon built the temple. And you know where he built the temple? He built it on Mount Moriah. Here at the place where Abraham went to sacrifice his son... God then would replace it with the institution of sacrifice to help his people understand that you need something to take your place and die for you in order for us to have a relationship and for me to be able to dwell with you. God institutionalized this location to help to continue to help his people understand this. We move on and continue to see even more parallels. Isaac is made to carry the very wood that he would die on on his back as he traveled to the place that he was going to die. Two years ago, Lee and I had the chance to be able to go to Israel. And in Jerusalem, they have this thing called the Via Dolorosa. It's the way of suffering, way of sorrows. It's a place that people believe is the path that Jesus took on the way to the cross. And on Jesus' walk to the cross, you know what he carried on his back? The very wood that he was meant to die on. Continues then as Isaac reaches then the altar and he's bound in the narrative without a word. It makes me think of Isaiah 53, 7 as Isaiah describes the suffering servant this way. He was oppressed and afflicted and he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Friends, this whole story is a flashing neon sign pointing us to Jesus. If we just read this, looking at Abraham's faith and how his faith helps us, we've missed the point of the story. Certainly there are things in Abraham's faith that are instructive to us. We see his faith was prompt. It was detailed. He took the ownership and the responsibility for it. He trusted God all the way to the end. He saw his obedience as worship. All of that is right and good, but it's not the point of the story. Abraham isn't the main point here, but God is, in particular, Jesus is. And so remember the question that Isaac asked as they were traveling up the mountain? He asked him, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? That question, when you take it here in Genesis 22 and you begin to read the rest of the Old Testament, you see that question continue to rattle throughout the pages of the Old Testament. As God's people then walking through the wilderness and the cries of the Israelites in the wilderness, crying out, where is the lamb? We see it in the words of the prophets, continuing to cry out, where is the lamb? We see it in the darkness of exile as God's people cry out, where is the lamb? And we see it in the midst of silence from God, where is the lamb? It is quite possibly, I think, a good summary, four-word summary of the entire Old Testament. Where is the lamb? So Then we get to the New Testament. In the first chapter of John's gospel, we're introduced to this new prophet, John the Baptist. He's eating locusts and living in a desert, but he sees Jesus for the first time, and here's what he says. Behold now the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist answered Isaac's question. Where is the lamb? He had not come yet. Notice God did not provide a lamb in Genesis 22. It was a ram that was caught in the thicket. Why? Because the Lamb of God had not yet come. He didn't come until Jesus stepped foot on this earth, living a perfect life, and then entering into his ministry. And when John the Baptist sees him, he says, Finally, Isaac's question is answered, and the Lamb has come to be able to die in our place as a substitute and to take away the sins of the world. This is the very essence of what the cross is about. Jesus in the place of sinners. We do not earn it. We do not work for God's affection. He loves us and died for us while we were sinners in our place. That Jesus takes our place and becomes our sin so that then we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The very heart of the gospel is seen in that word, substitution. God provided a substitute to Abraham with the ram and to us with the Lamb of God. What an amazing picture of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice in the place of us. And we see God's love displayed. So all of this is pointing forward to Jesus. But there is still a nagging question for me when I get to the end of this passage. As I want to ask at the end of this story, what drove Abraham to obey God? What was in his mind as he took that three-day journey and he traveled up the mountain in Moriah? Why would he be willing to kill his promised and beloved son? How was he able to have such unwavering hope in the midst of a seemingly impossible circumstance? We still don't really get underneath to see what was driving Abraham here in this story. Abraham marched to Mount Moriah, finally trusting God. Again, we've seen trusting God was hard for Abraham. He failed three times already, but here he finally trusted him. And we see in earlier in Abraham's life, in all those situations about lying about his wife two times and then not being able to have a son with Sarah and instead uh, having a child with Hagar, a child named Ishmael, that in every one of those situations, Abraham was given the choice to either trust God or to try to control the situation himself. In all three of those situations, he decided to control and manage the situation himself, saying that his wife was his sister and then sleeping with his wife's servant. But finally, here, he trusted. What drove that trust? And I find it interesting here in Genesis 22 and in the story of Abraham that the opposite of trusting God is not distrust in God, but it's trying to control your life. Abraham probably wouldn't have said, oh, I don't trust God. He probably wouldn't have vocalized that. He may not have even been aware of it. But what made evidence in his life that he didn't trust God is he was trying to control and manage it himself. Lying, covering up, and taking it into his own hands. The opposite of trust is control. And if we're so busy trying to control our own lives and manage our own lives, we may miss the ram that God has provided in the thicket. We may not be able to hear the rustle of the horns caught in the bushes. We may not be able to see God's provision in our lives. So we come back to the question we asked at the beginning. Friends, do you trust God? Or are you trying to control your life? What drove Abraham to trust? What was different about this situation for him and the others? And for you, how can you be driven to trust? Maybe you say, I want to. I want to be able to trust, but how can I trust him? I don't know if things will turn out like I want them to. I don't know how my situation can change. It feels hopeless. How can I trust God, right? You, you worry, and you're asking the question, how can I trust someone? What needs to be in place to build trust? I think about my relationship with my children. When I tell them something, what makes them trust me? There's probably a lot of things in play, but two of the most important that have to be there is they have to believe that I can do what I tell them I'm going to do. And they have to believe that what I'm saying is what's best for them. That I have the power to do what I'm saying I'm going to do. And that I have good intentions and love meant for them. And that power and that goodness then comes together to be able to say, okay, I'll trust you. If they doubt I can do what I say I'm going to do, they're not going to trust me. If they doubt my love for them, they're not going to trust me. So for us in our relationship with God, what is needed there to build trust? We see questioning his power and questioning his goodness need to be in place for us to be able to trust him. Abraham had both of these things as well. Because we're able to see kind of into his mind later in the New Testament. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, gives us a glimpse into Abraham's heart. In Hebrews 11, verse 17, the author writes this, that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac, So the author in Hebrews is saying Abraham received the promises, yet he still offered up his son as a sacrifice. How did he trust God in that moment? And here's what we see in Hebrews 11. And Abraham considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received Isaac back from the dead, figuratively speaking. And here we get the glimpse into what was happening in Abraham's mind. As he's walking to Mount Moriah, he's going, I can't reconcile the promise that God has given me and the command that he's now given me. But what I know is that what will triumph is not the circumstances in my life, but the goodness and the promise of God. And so I will hold on to it to somehow try to rationalize and consider that even if I go forward and I have to kill my son, I know that God will do what he promised to do. So he he must be raising him from the dead because I know what he promised me. And Abraham walked forward with that kind of confidence in the resurrection power of God to say that even in the midst of a seemingly impossible circumstance, I can walk forward in obedience because I know the resurrection power of my God in my life. That's what fueled Abraham's faith. Abraham walked through Genesis 22 with that logic. He said, I know that God promised me this son. So even if he dies, even if I have to kill him, I know that God will raise him back from the dead because God will do what he promised to do through a sort of resurrection power. Abraham believed that because he'd seen glimpses of it already in his life. Early in Hebrews 11, verse 12, the author writes this, that from one man Abraham, in fact, from one who was as good as dead because of how old he was, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, And as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. Abraham experienced this kind of resurrection power already in his life. That when he was already as good as dead, God still brought life through him. And Abraham saw this glimpse of resurrection in his life and went, Okay, I've seen it in God's uh, past and in his work in my life before. I will believe that he can then do it again. And the fuel for his faith was found in faint glimpses of the resurrection power of God. Abraham saw it faintly and believed that God would raise his son from the dead. Friends, Abraham had a glimpse of this kind of faith. But we can see it clearly. We do not have to cross our fingers wondering if God can raise the dead because we have a living hope that's seen in an empty tomb. And we know that God has done it once. We've seen the power that raised him from the dead. And we've seen that that power now lives in us to be able to bring us to life. And so God is still in the business of raising things that seem to be dead back to life. And there is no situation that is beyond his power or his ability. That we see Jesus on that day, on that first Easter, walking out of his grave, walking out of a borrowed tomb. I love that phrase that's used to describe that tomb, a borrowed tomb, right? You have any friends that when you give them something to borrow it, they just never give it back? They're terrible at borrowing things. I'm kind of that guy. I get, Brandon, if you're watching this, I borrowed your ladder a week ago. and I promise I'm going to give it back to you. Just sitting there, though, you have those friends. You give them something, and it seems they borrow it, but they never give it back. But friends, Jesus, when he borrows something, he gives it back. And when he got that grave, it was a borrowed grave because he didn't need it forever. He needed it for three days, and then he gave it back, and he walked out. And that power now, we see that we have a living Savior that's shown us that there is no circumstance, there is no grave, there is no institution of human hands or authority that can contain the glory and the power of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection power now lives in every single person that follows him. That's the reality we have of this Easter. And so we come and we ask, how then can I trust you, God, to go forward in a life that feels unknown? And we wrestle with the question of God's goodness or his power. And we wonder, God, are you truly good? Do you want the best for me? Because sometimes we look and we go, God, what you're giving me, I would choose something else. And we doubt his goodness. You may say, well, what if there was something else that I would have rather God given me? Friends, there will be a day when we see that what he gave us is the best. We don't understand it now, but one day we will. And we trust then in God's goodness. And we see His love and His goodness for us displayed on the cross. That His love is shown and demonstrated for us how? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You doubt God's goodness? Friends, look to the cross. And see God's love for you as he himself stepped into the story and died in your place. Look at the lengths that God has gone to to save you, to offer you life and joy and peace. To die in your place if you would turn and trust and follow him. If you doubt his goodness, look to the cross. It will help us in trusting him. But maybe you also doubt his power. I, I know that God loves me, but I don't know if I'm really honest, if he can change the situation that I'm in. It feels too far gone. It feels like the door is slammed. It feels like there's no way that this can be redeemed. And friends, we look to the cross to see the goodness of God, but to see his power displayed, we then look to the empty tomb to see that the greatest enemy that we've ever faced was trampled on on that day. And God then, in that power and in that victory, we see that there is nothing that can hold him back or that can contain him. And so God is good and God is powerful. And he's inviting us this morning, holding out his hand like he did to Abraham, and asking us the question, do you trust me? Do you trust him? This be, even in the midst of a difficult circumstance, maybe a seemingly impossible situation. And it feels like it's too far gone to know that that resurrection power speaks hope into every moment of our lives and injects trust into our unbelieving hearts. That even in, especially in, impossible circumstances where we've experienced death. There's a million ways we experience death in this world. Maybe you've experienced the death of a relationship that's come to an end, and it feels like it can't be redeemed or reconciled. Maybe you've experienced the death of a faith of someone that you love, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, who's turned their back on Jesus, and again feels like there's just no way that that situation can be redeemed. Maybe it's the death of dreams that you've had for your future dreams of what you'd hope your future would look like just seem to be dashed and it's very different from what you had imagined maybe it's the actual death of someone that you love a family member a father a child a friend someone that you love deeply how do we face these deaths in our life well friends the story of genesis 22 and the story of easter interject and speak to us in those moments Because in those moments, if we're not careful, we may think, God, you have no power over these situations. They're just too far gone. It can't be changed. It can't be redeemed. But friends, take note of Abraham. And Consider the resurrection power of God. To know that the grave did not have the final word in Jesus' life. Death was unable to hold him. And because of that empty grave, we can now stand in front of broken relationships shattered dreams, and even death itself, and trust all of our unknown circumstances in this world to a risen Savior and to a known God. If He brought life from His death, then I trust that He can do the same for me. So how do we trust Him? How can our trust grow? Friends, look to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul puts it this way, Behold Him. I love that word behold. It's not just a glance. It's not just a quick look, and maybe even a second look, but it's a lingering behold Jesus. Look at him until you see it. Behold him, because here in Jesus we see both the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world as God's love is displayed for us as he died on the cross. But friends, we not only find the Lamb of God, we also find the Lion of Judah the one who walked out of his grave and defeated our great enemy, death and sin and hell. And so while he left them in his grave when he walked out, he did not leave his love for you. And he came forward then to be able to give his victory to us. And so we see his power displayed through the empty tomb. So, as we look to Jesus, we see both God's goodness and His love and His power in this lion and in this lamb. And so we look and behold Him. And so, there, death may try to tell you in your life a different story. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that our claim can now be this, that death has been swallowed up in victory. And the question that we can ask is, where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see God's goodness, and we see God's power displayed through the Lion and through the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Behold Him. And when we look to him, we begin to be drawn to trust him because we see that God has our best in mind. He loves us like a father loves a child. It may not always be what we would ask, but we know that it's what's best. And we know that he has the power in any situation to bring life out of death. We behold him. We behold the Lamb of God. Friends, the cross has spoken. The work is finished, and the tomb is empty. Would that resurrection power fuel our faith and instill trust in our hearts that are so prone to wander? Friend, God is so much better at leading our lives than we are. But here's the question that we must answer today: Do we trust Him? Do you trust him? Let's pray. God, we are amazed at who you are. God, your power over a seemingly undefeatable enemy. God, and your love displayed so amazingly on the cross. God, help us to have the faith of Abraham, not just in how it's expressed, but also in its motivation. God, that we would be motivated by the resurrection power that you have shown us through Jesus, not just glimpses of, but clearly seen through that first Easter. God, help us to look to you, to see both your love and your power through Jesus Christ. And we love you. We're so grateful for the hope, the joy, and the life that we have in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.